Amen. Thank you so much, team. May I just say the, the electric guitarist today was outstanding. He really was another level. And uh, hopefully you guys will grow to that standard eventually. Just keep practicing, keep working hard, keep fasting and praying night and day, and eventually you'll hit that musical genius that you just heard there. And all of those wrong notes were totally intentional. I like to add a bit of a spark and jazz. It's jazz, you know? Nice. And uh, that's, that's how we roll. I like to keep you guessing. And uh, if you're in the room this morning, there's a handful of us in the room, feel free to grab a seat and uh, come closer to me, my friends. I don't bite. Um, and so those who are watching online, welcome. It's so good to see you this morning. I'll try and open Facebook as I preach this morning just because I want to post some stuff. No, I'm playing. I don't want to post anything. I just want to see what's going on, what you're saying. Um, my prayer today is that as we open the Word together, we would obviously be inspired um, but maybe even more than that, that we'd be challenged and we'd be challenged to maybe view some of the current circumstances we're facing differently. Uh, at the start of this morning's uh, service, through acknowledged that in the chat room there were people who have had difficult weeks and she said, share that. It's absolutely the right thing to say. Share it with us. And um, kind of what I want to say to that is kind of good. Good you're having a hard time at the moment and hopefully by the end of the message it will make sense as to why I would be encouraged by the fact you're having a difficult time and how maybe we can view our challenges and our hardships differently. Uh, and so I'm going to have this on uh, just in the background so that I can see comments that come up and if there's any questions or anything I may be able to engage with that but no promises because it is kind of confusing trying to read the Bible, look at my iPad and look at Facebook simultaneously. This morning uh, we're continuing uh, just... Yeah. Okay. Okay, right. So I've just got to talk at the camera one moment before we get into it. I'm going to be standing here today. So I think we're going to try and center it because obviously um, you, you want a joke. I don't think I have any jokes that are appropriate for Sunday Live. Okay. This is the joke. Okay, right, okay, so let's start with this, because we just did a hymn there in Christ Alone. I asked Hannah to, Hannah to sing that, just because it's a beautiful song, great lyrics, but like, I'm not known for one who really loves hymns. Mine's with this story of this uh, old church where they sung hymns, and the vicar would start each service with this competition, okay, that uh, he's going to put the hymn number on the hymn board at the back of the church, and anybody who can uh, guess what song it is gets to choose three hymns, okay? So anyways, he writes like three, five, seven. No, I've started my joke now, Richard, so I'm going to finish it. I don't care if your camera's ready, okay? No, no, I'm continuing the joke. He writes on the hymn board, three, five, seven. And an old woman kind of puts her hand up. I don't know why she's doing it like she's in Bollywood. She puts her hand up, okay? And uh, she says, how great thou art. And he goes, that's amazing, Enid. Well done, because Enid is a universally old name, okay? She kind of comes up and he says, okay, you get to choose three hymns. And she's like, brilliant, thanks, Vicar. She's like, right, I'll have him, I'll have him, and I'll have him. Oh, okay, right, so, so. That's why you shouldn't go off script on a Sunday morning. Um, this morning I'm talking about, uh, we're continuing our Just Jesus series and we're talking about the God of the aftermath. Aftermath, by a dictionary definition, if you look in your dictionary, will have something to this sentiment. Uh, the consequences or after effects of a significant unpleasant event, generally associated with a crisis, hardship, difficulty. And this morning I want to reframe that word because I like breaking down words and the way I see that word and it's something that God dropped into my spirit last week on the back of a text that Joe Mengel sent me through the Sunday morning prayers group, this word aftermath. And I was thinking about how when God moves in a crisis and situation, 
there is a math that follows after the challenge. There is some sort of addition that follows when you come through a season of hardship and difficulty. It seems unreasonable, it seems illogical, but most people in this room would say that the time that they have experienced God in the most intimate way was in the midst of a challenge and a hardship because he's the God of the aftermath. He's the God who brings blessing and multiplication and addition after a season of crisis and challenge. Hence why I started my message today by saying if you are going through it today, then that's exciting because it means that you're in store to encounter the God of the aftermath, the God who does something beyond just a provision, but something that flows into abundance and uh, extravagance. And so turn with me now to Matthew 15. I think it's Matthew 15. Uh, It's never encouraging when a preacher says, I think it's in Matthew 15. But it's somewhere around there, Matthew, Matthew 14, close, not bad. Okay, and it's a passage that we intimately know as the feeding of the 5,000s. That's what, that's what we call it. That's what we know the miracle to be when we tell our kids at Sunday school. We're kind of all familiar with the feeding of the 5,000. Here's the situation. 5,000 plus people, so 5,000 men plus women and children, have been uh, listening to Jesus teach. They're like just in awe of his teaching. He's bringing something fresh. We spoke about his teaching authority, Samika, a few weeks ago, and they're following what he's saying. But then evening comes and they're hungry um, because you know that a good conference always includes food. Okay, you just know that, right? That's what I always look for when I'm attending a conference. Is there good food kind of accompanying the messages I'm going to hear? And so the disciples come to Jesus and they say, look, we need to send the people away because we don't have the food. Okay, so the people are here, they're hungry, there may be eight, nine, ten thousand plus people, and we just don't have the resource to feed the people. It is a food crisis, that's exactly what it is. And Jesus says, well, what have we got? And what they do, JJ, you ready to throw these to me? They say, well, we've got five loaves, here we go, boom. We've got five loaves, thank you, nice one. We've got five loaves, can someone just throw that up to me? We've got five loaves and two fish. You know, here we go. And if you want to know how they got that supply, basically they bullied a young kid into it. But there's five loaves, two fish, okay? And this is kind of absolutely ridiculously not enough to feed the amount of mouths that need feeding that day. What does Jesus say to them? Look at this in verse 18. I think it'll come up on the screen. He says this, bring them here to me. Okay, bring them to me. So bring your lack Bring your not enough to me. You know, in other words, place this crisis into my hands. Place this difficulty into my hands. Place this hardship into my hands. And if, for those of you who are going through it this morning and this week, there's a great starting point. I don't really have pointers to tell you, but put it into his hands, okay? Just put it into his hands. He says, bring it to me. Bring the lack to me. Then he says, he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Now, check this out. Taking the five loaves... And the two fish, what does he do? The scripture says he looks up to heaven and he gave thanks. It's mind-blowing. He takes the lack, he sees the need, he sees the resource, and he looks up. He doesn't look at the people. He doesn't look at the supply. He looks to heaven, right, which is crazy. So he's looking up and then he gives thanks. Somehow Jesus cultivates in this moment an attitude that is so superior to one that we often cultivate in our own lives. Like I'm not saying that I could ever be Jesus in this situation, but let me tell you how, how this would play out. 
if, if someone said, this is what we've got, I'd be like, right, well, let's pick our favorites in the crowd and let's send everyone else home. Okay, five loaves. What will that feed? Maybe 30 people at best, two fish. I'm not touching the fish, so you guys can share that amongst yourselves. But the rest we can send home because, you know what, we've given them a good day's teaching, so it's all good. Uh, but let's just say someone's going to say, no, Dom, come on, do a miracle. This is how it might look in my world is, God, I know you can't be serious with this. Because look at what's in my hands. Like, there's clearly not enough. I mean, I'm, I didn't do great at GCSE math, but I can count up to five. And I can't count past 100. Then there's a lots of hundreds of people before me. And so generally what I would be inclined to do is complain to God with my lack. Really? In this crisis? This is the supply? Jesus' response is to look up and give thanks. So if there was a second point I would say to my message, and this isn't a message with pointers, it would be this, is to cultivate an attitude of gratitude. Because actually gratitude precedes multiplication. It often precedes um, blessing. There's something about God that is drawn towards an attitude of gratitude. That's the day when we started our service. Hannah said, I think this week we should start with two praise songs. And I said, Hannah, you're absolutely right. Because what it does is even if you feel like junk and you're writing that into the chat room, I'm not belittling your pain and the hardship you're facing. But the correct response in all crisis and hardship is to look up and give thanks. It's to look up, not look at the situation, not look at the people, not look at the need, not look at the supply, but to look up and say, God, you're amazing. And so Jesus looks up in this moment, and he gives thanks. Now, it's crazy. Look, we read on. He gave them to his disciples, okay, and the disciples gave them to people, right? So I'm going to give them back to the disciples. Here we go, guys. Okay, so he gives the loaves to distribute back to the disciples. Verse 20, here's the amazing thing. They all ate and were satisfied. The crowds were able to eat everything they want until they were satisfied. It wasn't like a communion offering. It wasn't just like take a pinch of bread. Okay, it was like eat until you're satisfied. Eat until you're full. They were satisfied. Now, here's the thing that blows me away even more than the miracle that just took place. It says, And the disciples picked up the 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Can you throw me the wicker basket, please, JJ? Check this. So they started with five loaves and two fish. Right, can you just throw me some of those loaves, Jase? Okay. Keep them coming. Oh, nice. Little rugby pass there through. Good job. Whoa. Okay, Hannah, chill out. Oh, Pete, how do you put up with that? She is feisty. That's the word of the Lord you just smashed off the lectern, Hannah. All I'm saying is, Lord, get your coordinates right. I was in the groove, and that, that was Hannah. She's like out of order, my gosh. How can you worship? How can you lead us in worship and treat the word of God with such disdain, my word? So here we are, five uh, loaves of bread. With, they wouldn't have been wrapped up in Aldi wrapping. Um, contained in not just one basketful, but 12 basketfuls. That's mind-blowing to me. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why it's mind-blowing. Because actually, in Greek, if you look at the word uh, for basket here, you're going to see it come up on the screen. It's kofinos. Okay, it's going to come up on the screen. And basically, it speaks to a basket that you can carry on your back. So it's probably a slightly bigger basket than this. Uh, and it's one that you would wear on a strap and put on your back and carry around. Now, there's 12 basketfuls left over. 
So for me, I think I would want to reframe this miracle as the miracle of the 12 basketfuls left over after Jesus had fed 5,000 men plus women and children with five loaves and two fish. It's not so catchy, is it? I mean, you might need a few extra pages in your Bible to contain the titles that I would want to write. But there is something significant about that. What's the significance here numerically? I mean, there, there may be some significance that we can draw. Twelve loaves. How many disciples? Twelve disciples. Maybe God is saying, listen, after you have, you know, given of yourselves, after you have given your first fruits and given the supply away first, there's always more than enough back for you as a disciple, as a follower of Christ. So just as Adam said before we went into in Christ alone, you can't outgive God. It's about just bringing faithfully the offering that's in our hands because actually, you know, God won't see his children go without. Maybe that's what we're kind of going to learn in there. I don't know. Maybe it's to do with the fact that like 12 basketfuls representing 12 tribes of Israel. We know that Israel holds a key place, a dear place in God's heart. And so maybe there's this prophetic imagery that the disciples will actually reach into the 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, there could be all sorts of significance and we can only kind of ponder. And we should ponder because it's kind of one of the glorious things about reading the word of God is you can read it a thousand times and see new things jumping out all the time. But I don't really want to ponder that this morning. All I want to say is 12 basketfuls left over from five loaves and potentially 10,000 people. Okay, now I want to talk about an even greater miracle by the same writer that he writes, Matthew, same, same gospel. Okay, it's not the same event. Matthew makes a distinction between these two events. And it's Matthew chapter 15, and it's very similar. Crowds came, we read in verse 13, chapter 15, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at Jesus' feet. And he healed them. People were amazed. And when they saw the mute speaking, the cripple made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, they praised the God of Israel. Jesus called his disciples to him and says, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. Now, at this point, the disciples already have like a, a point of reference for what Jesus may do in this moment because they've seen it not that long ago when there was more people. Okay, so Jesus asked this question. He says, well, they say, the disciples say, where could we get enough bread to feed this posse of people? Jesus' response, how many loaves do you have? A really insightful thought. So here's another crisis, another food crisis. A crisis that requires a miraculous intervention. A crisis that requires the followers of Jesus to ultimately become the hands of Jesus. Okay, to actually bring some sort of supplies. So Jesus turns to them and says, what do you have? How many loaves do you have? They answer. They say, uh, well, we've got seven, they replied, and a few small fish. So this time, Jays, can you throw me another two? Oh, we've got one there, have we? We went a bit crazy in that one. We've got seven loaves. Okay. So at face value, it's still a miracle, but the miracle in some way seems a little bit less, like, impressive. I mean, it's still impressive, don't get me wrong. But there's less mouths to feed and more food, even though it's still lack, to go around. Okay, but I actually think this miracle is even more impressive, and I'll show you why. Verse 35, he said to the crowd, sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves, and look, we're going to learn it again, and the fish, and he gave thanks. Again, Jesus is demonstrating something like when there's need... It's not the time for complaint and it's not the time 
for doubt and it's not the time for self-introspection. It's actually an environment in which God can do his finest work. It's actually an environment that God wants us to be in because actually he wants to show us what he is able to do with our lack. This story would nowhere been as good if it said, oh, we've only got a thousand loaves here today, Jesus. But the fact that they had few and they placed it into the hands of Jesus, Jesus takes it and he gives thanks. Again, cultivating that sense of um, thanksgiving and praise. And it says that he gave them to the disciples. Okay, so it's coming out again. Hannah, right back at you, loser. Right, through. Meg, coming to you. Have another one, Jays. Okay, so he passes out the seven. Okay. Now, this is crazy. They all ate again and were satisfied. So the people were still satisfied. So it wasn't just measly offerings. Again, they all had what they wanted. And if I'd been following Jesus for three days, which is what we read in that passage, maybe you want three or four sandwiches. I don't know, like fish sandwiches. I wouldn't want that. I'd say, Jesus, got any chicken in there? I know, I know we're not cool with pork just yet, but chicken is all good. Can we get chicken in this sandwich, please? And what's crazy is, is after they all ate, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Okay, so send them back. Okay, so now, right, Hannah, what is your beef today, Hannah? Seriously. My God, what have I done to you? Don't, don't take communion until you've settled it with me, all right, because this is craziness. Okay, so they collect in, and this time there's seven basketfuls of loaves. Now, what I want you to understand, I mean, that is significant, but the reason I love this miracle is because the word for basket here, remember, same gospel writer, same person capturing the account and writing it down, uses a different word here for basket. And this one, can you put it up, Richard? It is spurious. Hopefully. There we go, spurious. Spurious. It's a word. It's different to the coffinos. And when we read it in the scriptures, we go, oh, okay, cool. So, you know, in the first instance, 5,000 people, 12 basketfuls left over. Now, 4,000 people, 7 basketfuls left over. Now, here's the challenge with this word, is that it features somewhere else in the New Testament. And it's incredible where it appears. So, if you've got your scriptures, feel free to jump with me. If not, we're going to go down the screen. Acts chapter 9, verse 23. A time when Paul, or Saul, was under threat in a town that he was in. It says, after many days had gone by, this is Acts chapter 9, verse 23 to 25, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket. Everyone say basket. basket. This basket is spurious, okay? So it's the same type of basket that we read in this second miracle that we've just read about. And it says they lowered him through an opening in the wall. Now, this basket was different because it was less of a domestic basket and it was more of an industrial basket. Jay's. So this is the best that I got at home right now, but actually even dimensions fall foul. But Jay's, can you get in there, please? You knew that was coming blatantly. And then that's why Jake pulled a sickie this morning so he could get out of this moment right here. The basket in Acts 9 was sufficient enough to lower Paul down a city. It was so strong and sufficient enough generally used in fishing because it was, it was generally pulled by boats. It wasn't a case that you could put this on your back and walk around town. It was a much more, it needed some sort of vehicle of sorts, whether it be a donkey or two, to actually pull these types of bag. And this is what we read in this moment, 
Josh, make sure you can see JJ in here, because I like the fact he's in a bag. I think that's so cool. And kids, if you want a JJ in a bag for Christmas, you can get one from all your local retailers. Right there, loving life, okay? This is what we're seeing in this miracle moment where Jesus gets the disciples to collect in. Okay, you can get out now. Okay. And look, I'll put these seven loaves into this bag. And it's not even close to even being a quarter full. Yet there were seven of these that were the product of the miracle after everyone had had their fill. I mean, it's crazy. Like, what is the significance of seven of these? I mean, seven we know in the scriptures is a, uh, an indication of completeness or perfection. But for me, I mean, whilst there may be some significance in it, like I'm not a scholar with this stuff. What is undeniable for me is this, this just Jesus that we worship, okay, isn't the God of the just enough. We have to understand that. This just Jesus that we worship isn't the God of the just enough. But he's a God of the abundance. He's a God of the extravagance. He's a God of the so much more. Now let me tell you, the only reason that the disciples could encounter God in this way and see the effect of praise and blessing in this way was because of the environment of crisis. No need, no miracle. Okay, you need to understand that. No need, no miracle. So, so many of us in Western Christianity, and to be honest, in my household, we want miracle after miracle after miracle, but we don't want to live in the environment that necessitates the miracle. We, we want to experience the hand of God and this miraculous provision, this miraculous breakthrough, but what we don't want to do is be in the place of suffering where we need it. But how can you have a miracle unless there is a crisis? How can you see the hand of God if your hand can provide the solution? This is why we need to see our hardship difficulty through a different lens. That's why I said this morning, if you are struggling in life today, of course, I'm not excited about that because that's hard. But what I am saying is that if you are in a particularly difficult situation or circumstance, you're in exactly the right environment for God to do his finest work. But there are some things that we need to think about. We need to bring the lack we have and put it in the hands of Jesus. We need to, call, we need to look to heaven. We need to look up. We not look at our circumstances, not look at people, but to look to God, to hear what he has to say. We need to bring an attitude of gratitude. And we need to cultivate a sense of expectation. God, I know that you are more than enough. You're just Jesus but you're not the God of the just enough. You're the God of the so much more. This is the aftermath. The miracle is incredible, but it's the aftermath that I find so perplexing. Everyone's fed, yet there is more than enough. More than enough. It's insane. The reason that uh, this heart aftermath, this word aftermath was just in my spirit was last Sunday, uh, Jo, she may not even remember doing this, but she sent a text, I think, just before the service. And she said oh, her and Evie had had that song or that sentiment, the battle belongs to the Lord in their head. And as I was playing keyboard and worshipping, I just felt like this word aftermath would just not leave me. And I had to prayerfully process it and think about it. 
But when I think about that situation where we see that the battle belongs to the Lord, it actually, it's in a few places in the Old Testament, but the one I was thinking about was 2 Chronicles 20. So check this out. This is so cool. 2 Chronicles 20. Jehoshaphat, a pretty good king in Israel's history, okay? Jehoshaphat gets wind that there are enemies basically moments away from coming and wiping out the Israelites, okay? So we, we read in verse 2 in 2 Chronicles 20, Old Testament, some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the sea. Okay, and what's amazing is that we read in, in verse 5 that then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in the front of the new courtyard and, and then basically just prays out loud and just begins to acknowledge like we're in a real situation. So in verse 3 you see, alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord. What does inquire mean? It means simply to look up. He inquired, he, he set his heart rather than fill his heart with concern and fear and rather than feeding on the crisis he chooses to inquire to search after to look for God and then we read in verse 12 oh our God will you not judge them for we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us we do not know what to do but our eyes are upon you let me read you what I uh, wrote in this moment like this is the sentiment I kind of captured. We are in this crisis, God. We have no power to face what we're facing. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. If, if you are experiencing hardship this morning and you've had the worst week ever, this is a great posture to adopt. I'm in this crisis. I don't have the power to face what I'm facing and I don't know what to do, but God, I'm looking to you. I'm fixing my eyes on you and then we're going to read 17 verses right now because I, I, I could abbreviate it and I could speed it up but I really don't want you to miss it so I will read it quite quickly but verse 13 it will be on the screen all the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones and I love that I love that stood here before the Lord it was a it was a family it was a household thing that they did then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite, a descendant of Asaph, as he stood in the assembly. Okay, so the Spirit of God's moving. In verse 15, he said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. He says, Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours but God's. The battle isn't yours. The battle belongs to the Lord. I think that's why so many of us burn out. Anxiety, mental strain, mental illness. We're fighting battles that we're not called to fight. Our posture as believers should be not to look down and engage, but to look up and open our hands and say, Lord, I'm thankful. Lord, I'm thankful. And so this word continues, the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow, here's the word of the Lord, march down against them, okay? So you are going to march against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. Verse 17, you will not have to fight this battle. So you are going to meet it face to face. You are going to march towards it. You are going to keep moving. You are going to keep going forwards, but you're not going to fight it. 
You are going to come and you are going to stand before this challenge. You are going to come and stand in the valley of this crisis. But you, you're not going to be the one who fights it. It says, take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance that the Lord will give you. Oh, Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow and the Lord will be with you. I see Linda Blake writing into the Facebook room, change your perspective changes the view. It really does. Changing the perspective changes your view. And this is what happens. He says, verse 18, Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground. And all the people, I don't know if you can see, we don't have a culture cam right now, so I'll just stay here. So Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. Imagine that, like just this moment of praise and worship. Then some Levites from the Kohathites and Kurahites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. What is preceding this moment again? What is it? It's thanksgiving. It's praise. It's adopting an attitude of gratitude. That's what's happening in this moment. The crisis is real. The need is there. The challenge is manifesting itself. But they are seeing it face to face. But what they're doing is they are bowing to the ground and they are praising and they are bringing worship to God. Verse 20, early in the morning they left for the desert of Tekoa. And as they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God and you will be upheld. Put your faith in your Lord. Put your faith in the God of the aftermath. Put your faith in Jesus. Just Jesus. Bearing in mind that this moment, this crisis happens before God has even sent his son. So they are living in an old covenant, in an old testament, where they didn't all have this but crazy, intimate, personal relationship with Jesus. Their experience of God was lived through the high priest. Yet in this moment, they understand that like we're going to come with worship and we're going to praise God. And he says, listen to me, Judah, you, you, you will be upheld as you put your faith in God. Have faith in his prophets and you will be successful. Verse 21, after consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out to the head of the army saying, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. Friends, this passage is too vast and it's so incredible that I just can't do justice with, justice with the time I have. But understand this, that their, that their response to the word of the Lord and their response to the crisis was not to put their warriors at the front, it was to put their worshippers at the front. It wasn't to send in their arsenal and deploy their greatest kind of army strategy, okay? It was simply to enter into this crisis with a, with a sense of praise and thanksgiving. It, it sounds so countercultural because basically if you want to come to a fight, we know the science. You've got to bring a bigger gun than your opponent. You've got to bring a weapon that is more powerful than what your opponent will be carrying. But we see in this instance that the greatest weapon that you can take into any battle is one of worship and praise. It's a posture of thanksgiving. Often we enter, battle, uh, we enter battles and we enter challenges and we carry burdens, but as a warrior rather than a worshiper, we, we come and we, we, we don't pray, but we just think on the problem and it's not prayer. It's not the same as prayer. Worry is not prayer. It doesn't even matter if you say amen at the end of it. Actually, what prayer is, is it's coming into the presence of God. And I believe it's first starting with a stance of thanksgiving and gratitude. One of praise. 
It doesn't mean that God isn't interested in hearing what you're worried about at all. I'm not saying that. But if that's all that prayer is to you, that you just think, well, if I just worry hard enough about this situation, you know, or if I can just speak to my bank manager, or if I can just do this in this relational kind of uh, dysfunction that I'm experiencing, like if I can do something. But what we're seeing in the scripture is God is saying, this isn't your battle, this is my battle. And the way that you behave in a battle that doesn't belong to you is simply to go in worshipping. That's the invitation, friends. Either you can pick up arms and you can fight it in your own strength or you can worship and praise and put it into the hands of Jesus and say, God, this one's on you. You're the God of the aftermath. And they give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. Verse 22, and as they began to sing and praise, this bit's incredible. This is like such a great miracle. The Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah and they were defeated. The Lord sets ambushes. We read in verse 23, the men of Ammon and Moab rose up against the men from Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. And after they finished slaughtering the men from Seir, listen to this, they helped to destroy one another. That's crazy. It's a crazy scene. It's a crazy scene. So you've got enemies coming who end up engaging in battle with one another okay, and fighting one another and killing one another, okay, so that's one aspect of a miracle that's amazing, but then after that, they kill themselves. It's, it's, a, it's an insane kind of moment that Jehoshaphat and the people of Israel are watching play out. It's, it's madness, it's crazy, it's unreasonable, it's illogical, yet this is what's playing out. That They're not picking up a sword, they're not picking up anything, all they're doing is they're worshipping and praising. And what that does is it sets in motion this moment for a tremendous miracle. A miracle that would not have been needed if they could have defeated the enemy in their own right. Like the whole thing is absolutely crazy. And it's cool because like... If the miracle would have stopped there, just like the basketful, uh, just like the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, if the miracle would have stopped there, we'd be like, wow, that's incredible. But listen what happens. When the men of Judah came to the place, verse 24, that overlooks the desert and looked towards the vast army, they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one escaped. Verse 25, so Jehoshaphat and his men went to carry off their plunder, and they found among them a great amount of equipment and clothing and articles of value, more than they could take away. There was so much plunder that it took three days to collect it. Three days. This is the basketfuls of leftover. This is the aftermath of God, the supernatural addition and multiplication that only God can do. Not only did he provide the victory in the valley, he actually made it so that the Israelites walked out stronger, walked out richer, walked out more blessed, walked out more prosperous. It's crazy. Had God have just defeated these armies, it would have been enough. But he's the God of the aftermath. He's not the God of the just enough. He's the God who wants to do exceedingly abundantly more than all you can ask or imagine. And I love it in verse 26. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Berakah where they praised the Lord. Isn't that so cool? That this valley that could have gone on to be known as the valley of burden or the valley of brutality or even the valley of battle actually goes on to be known as the valley of Beraka, which means the valley of blessing. This is the economy of God. This is what 
hardship, crisis, suffering, difficulty has the potential to achieve in your life. This is, I mean, it's just crazy when you think about it, isn't it? Is that like what appeared to be an overwhelming burden became a place of abundant blessing. It almost seems illogical to say this. But sometimes I think maybe one of the most unhelpful things we can do is pray our way out of hardship. Say, God, would you, would you take this away? God, would you address this? God, would you take away my suffering? Would you take away this difficulty? Would you take away this trial? Because I'm really just struggling underneath it. And it's true to say that, that God wants to lift your burdens. But it's also true to say that you can't begin to imagine how much God can achieve when you face difficulty and hardship and challenge. Sometimes we want to jump out the fire prematurely. Sometimes we want to jump out the battle prematurely. In fact, always we do. As people, we run from it. But ultimately, what if that place that is such a significant battle right now is going to be the testimony that you hold to so dear to in five years to come? I wonder if it's possible for us to cultivate a sense of hindsight in the present moment. To say, right now, I can't make sense of this. Right now, I'm struggling right now. I'm, I'm battling and I don't know what's what. But God, I'm thanking you and I'm grateful because I believe that I'm going to see a victory. I believe I am going to see you come through. And it may not be right now. It may not be today. It may not even be in the way that I expect. But I know that this place of battle can become a place of blessing. For me, that makes so much more sense of the weird thing. And I'm landing with this now. Phil, do you want to jump on the keys? I am very much at the end. So please track with me for those still online. Um, that in James, it's a profound thing that James says. And it doesn't make sense on paper. It kind of feels just like, so it sounds like folly almost, but it's so profound. In James 1, I think it's chapter, verse 2, it says, Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Like many kinds, it may be a, relation, a relational trial, it may be a financial trial, it may be a diagnosis trial, it may just be a self-esteem trial, it may be a mental illness trial, it may be a loneliness trial, but it doesn't matter what kind of trial it is, James is saying to us, consider it pure joy. The purest form of joy when you face these trials of many kinds. Why? Well, James goes on to say, as he says that, because we know that the testing of our faith produces perseverance. So James says, if that's true, then let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. Everybody say mature and complete. And then this is the thing that I think is just so cool. Not lacking anything. Like, it's incredible to see how God is able to take the chaos and the crappy stuff of life. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know the better Greek Bible word for that but the hard things of life the difficult things of life the trials and the the trials of many kinds that we want to avoid or we want to resist or we want to run from it's amazing how actually God wants you to lack nothing and the way that he brings you into maturity the way he promotes you to the next level and the next measure of blessing is through challenge it's through hardship. It's through difficulty. Think about it like this. Like we, we should never disconnect the fruit from the seed. Does that make sense, Hannah? Does it make sense? 
Don't connect, disconnect the fruit from the seed. If the fruit is to be complete, for Hannah to be complete, for Hannah to be mature, for Hannah to not lack anything, to know abundance, that's the fruit. The seed is trials. We, we want the fruit. We don't want the seed. It's like we want the product. We hate the process. And I think it's a bizarre thing that James would say, consider it pure joy. But what James had learned in his own life was that actually these trials, hardships and difficulties, they were the exact kind of environments where God does incredible things. So like if we understand the fact that these environments of need and crisis and challenge create a space where we need to lock up, where we need to put all that we have into the hands of Jesus, where we need to cultivate a sense of praise and thanksgiving and worship. Then if God just took our trials away, how could we mature in the faith? If God just took our trials away, how could we develop perseverance and become complete? If God took the trials away, then we, we would lack some things. But when, when these trials do their work, when they produce the fruit in their life that God would want them to produce... There's a sense of basketfuls of supply and provision. Some of the greatest giants of faith that I look up to in this world are people who have come through extreme difficulty. And don't get me wrong, I'm not skipping out of here going, oh, I hope everything falls apart tomorrow. Of course I'm not. All I'm trying to do is reframe a perspective. That means that when we look at the challenges we're facing, I mean, we're definitely not questioning God if you're real. But even better than that, neither are we saying, God, would you take this away? We're saying, God, let it do its work in my life. Let it, let it run its course until you see it fit to be the God of the aftermath. Like, I'm okay in this crisis. I'm okay in this difficulty. I'm okay in this need. A, if you're here. B, if I can know your presence. And C, knowing that this is creating in me character maturity, a sense of not lacking anything. So I'm going to, even now in hindsight, rather than look at this place as my battle, uh, my valley of battles, it's going to be my valley of blessings. It's going to be the place where I know God most. It's going to be the place where I see God work. It's going to be the place where I see God go above and beyond the need. May not be today, may not be tomorrow may not be in the way that I want or in the way that I think but I'm believing that all things work all things work together for the good of those who love him my God is not just Jesus the God of the just enough he is just Jesus the God of the so much more the more than enough and if that relates to you at home today when you reach out I want to pray for you this morning May's put in the chat room that this is how we fight our battles. I love that song. This is how we fight our battles. What does that even mean? We fight our battles with worship and praise. Hence in the song, this is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. Maybe I'll invite the band to come up as we sing. Song, God, I look to you. A real great song of response to this word. A great opportunity for us to really pray as we sing these words. God, I look to you, I won't be overwhelmed. I won't be overwhelmed because I'm looking to you, I'm looking up. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for every person 
uh, this morning tuning in online, God. I thank you, God, that they tracked with me through the message, Lord. And I ask this morning, God, that we would know, we would know that you are the God of the valley. Lord, that we would know, Father, that you're the God of the aftermath. You're not the God of the just enough, but you're the God, the God of the so much more. You're the God of the exceedingly, immeasurably more. That's the God you are. You're the God of the aftermath. You're not just a God who's looking to just kind of make ends meet and to struggle. But that God, you're the God who... who just provides and brings blessing into our moments of crisis and God we acknowledge this morning that sometimes we have been impatient as people and sometimes we have struggled to see how the process leads to the product we've struggled to see how the seed leads to the fruit but God we understand this morning even though we won't always understand our pain that we will choose to trust you in our pain and we will continue to bring praise and worship and thanksgiving and gratitude God over every diagnosis, over every financial need, over every relational turmoil, we choose to just look up, to place the little we have into your hands. We don't have much, God. There's a lot of mouths to feed and I've only got a little bit of supply. But Jesus, I put it in your hands and I'm believing that you are the God of the so much more. God, you don't just give us pithy things, God. You, you pour overflow, overflow. God, I thank you this morning, God, that you're the one who doesn't just meet needs. But you're the God who owns the cattle on the thousand hills, God. Nothing is beyond your ability to uh, do, God. Nothing is beyond your capacity to reach and to touch and to heal and to bring supply. And so, Father, this morning, Lord, for every person who acknowledged themselves in the chat rooms as struggling today, God, today we choose to reframe it as an opportunity to see your greatest work in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.